amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. I think we've entered this interesting phase where we assume that we've kind of conquered nature, but nature will come back and remind us that we are part of a larger network that involves every organism on the planet. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. I'm Andy Langer. With the city of Austin's declaration of disaster that led to the cancellation of South by Southwest, it made sense to us to focus this episode on the coronavirus. But we're coming at it from a slightly different angle. We already had geneticist, anthropologist, and author Spencer Wells booked for the show, and we've moved up his appearance. He's a geneticist, one of the real rock stars in the field of population genetics, not an infectious disease expert. But he's also traveling right now in Asia and has been actively tracking COVID-19 spread. He calls it evolution in action, and he knows some things about evolution. He launched the National Geographic's Genographic Project, which uses DNA samples to map the history of human migration. And the project is often credited with kickstarting the consumer genomics industry. Wells grew up in Lubbock, enrolled at the University of Texas at Austin when he was just 16 years old, and earned his PhD in biology from Harvard University. In 2002, his book, The Journey of Man, A Genetic Odyssey, showed how genetic data can trace human migrations over the past 50,000 years. And now he runs Insightum, the company he founded to provide genetic tests revealing the stories of people's ancestry. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Texas at Austin. Outside of science, he co-owns Austin's legendary blues club, Antones, which was an official South by Southwest venue. On the podcast, we talk about the South by Southwest cancellation, how he's seeing Asia deal with the coronavirus, the concept of contact tracing, and privacy in the era of mass DNA testing. This is Spencer Wells. All right, welcome. So you're in Indonesia. We're here in Austin. The stock markets are crashing as we speak uh, on this Monday morning. Uh, we've got South by Southwest canceled. The future of the festival, among a myriad of other uncertainties around the globe, uh, looks uncertain. We've got you here because while you're a geneticist, you're also traveling right now. And you say this is watching, quote, evolution in action. Explain that part to me. <laughs> Yeah, so my background is in the study of evolution at the genetic level. Um, I have studied human population genetics for, gosh, nearly three decades now. Um, but, you know, cut my teeth really kind of studying the basics of how organisms evolve. And one of the things that I got interested in very early on is the evolution of viruses, because they've been so important in human history. Um, you know, we can see evidence of this in our own genetic makeup, regions like the HLA region, the most variable region in the human genome, They're, they encode proteins that basically help us fight off viruses and other nasty pathogens. But, 
Yeah, I've always been really interested in this whole idea of emerging viruses and the danger they may pose. I mean, humanity has a long history of interacting with these little entities. They're not really organisms. They're not technically living because they require a host to, to reproduce. But um, yeah, I mean, if you think about something like the Black Plague, which between the 13th and 17th centuries killed off roughly half of the population of Europe. I mean, that's a significant hit to human demography. And so, you know, you have to ask, well, how have we adapted to those organisms and how have they adapted to us? And so it really is watching evolution in action. And the coronavirus, you know, is, is very chilling. It's a chilling reminder that, you know, despite our modern technology, despite the ability to speak to each other via Skype from, you know, central Java over the internet and you're in Austin and we're 12 hours apart and continents apart, um, you know, these little reminders about our biology kind of bring it back home and, you know, the world can be a scary place. Your estimation is the world is only going to get scarier, at least short term, because of this. Because of the coronavirus? Yeah, listen, I mean, so I, I was in, I'm in Indonesia now, as you said. Um, we flew over from uh, Singapore two days ago. And Singapore, I think, has had the best response in the world. I mean, the, the contact tracing there is incredible. Basically, when you go into any government building, you go into any corporate building, they take down all of your contact information. And if anybody comes up, you know, positive for the virus who's ever entered that building, they will get in touch with every single person who has also entered that building within, you know, a span of a few days around the, that side of it. And so, you know, this is something that, that the rest of the world is really not doing yet. And, you know, as a result, like Singapore was hit really hard early on. So, you know, this is a virus that seems to have come ultimately from a bat source, although, you know, that, that hasn't been completely determined yet, but that's the most likely, you know, host of this thing ultimately in the wild, um, possibly transmitted into humans via this wet market in, in Wuhan, in China, in Hubei province, um, perhaps via a pangolin. Um, you know, which it has a lot of things in common with the SARS virus of 2002-2003. Bat coronavirus transmitted to humans via this wildlife trade, civet cats in that case. Um, you know, this is a kind of well-trodden path in terms of introducing new pathogens into the human population. But, you know, once it exploded in China, China has a huge amount of trade, a lot of people moving back and forth. This happened right around Chinese New Year when a lot of Chinese people traveled to Singapore. So Singapore was really hit hard. And luckily they had learned the lessons from the SARS epidemic in 2002, 2003. And so they shut things down. They literally just, they're like, okay, we're on top of this. We're cutting off all flights from China. We know that it's probably gonna get us in trouble politically, but you know, it's the best thing to do for our people. And they started this contact tracing. They started widespread testing. They now have a chip, a DNA testing chip that they can implement at ports of entry into the country and get results within three hours. I mean, the technology that they've implemented to deal with this and the money they've spent on it is, is extraordinary. And in many ways, you know, as a result, Singapore, oddly enough, even though it was one of the first countries outside of China to be hit by this, is probably one of the safest places to be today. So, you know, I'm looking at what's unfolding in America and thinking, okay, when I'm done with this trip in Indonesia, you know, we're back in Singapore, 
I'll be watching perhaps from the sidelines. Like, when do I want to come back to the States? When do I feel it's safe to go there? You're an expert in privacy and DNA. This contact tracing, if it were to come here, it seems like Americans would have to make a decision between privacy and public health. That's always the issue with public health. I mean, listen, Andy, at the end of the day, you don't want to die. You don't want your children to die. You don't want, in this case, your grandparents to die because it tends to be people over the age of 70 who are the ones who are dying from this. The mortality rate for children is minuscule. It's, it's comparable to the seasonal flu, the influenza virus. Um, but as you get older and older, it goes up. So by the time you hit you know, that cohort between 70 and 79, you're talking about a 7% mortality rate, according to the estimates I've read. And over 80, you're talking about 15% mortality. That's, that's pretty hardcore. You know, so we don't want people to die, ultimately. Like we as a society, and that could either be us as American citizens, us as Texans, us as citizens of Austin, or us as you know, citizens of the world, we don't want to sit by and watch people die. And so you have to give up a little bit of personal freedom in order to ensure safety for the, you know, the larger group. We've spent a lot of time here just in the last 48 hours considering the economic impact in Austin of the cancellation of South by Southwest. You're a co-owner of Antone's, a one little tiny cog in this machine, this ecosystem uh, that South by Southwest created 34 years ago. But to you, South by Southwest's cancellation, that was a smart move. It absolutely was a smart move. I mean, listen, I, I think it's nearly two weeks ago now. You can go on my Twitter account and check this out if you're interested. But I ran this poll, like compared to a month ago, how many of you are more afraid of going to a conference in real life or less afraid or don't care? And, you know, even a month ago, people were like, no way, I'm, there's no way I'm going to a conference because that's where this sort of virus is spread. It's like people in close contact, cruise ships, churches, conferences, like we are gonna see so many people who've ignored the warning signs, who went to these conferences, who will get sick and have transmitted it on to other people in the community. The, the, the kind of, the cat's out of the bag now. And so it is out running in the community. And ultimately, again, the goal is to save lives. And although, yes, I do have a financial interest in Antones and of course would love to see South By go ahead. Everybody would. Like we, we love South By. Like not just me as a venue owner, but like I think everybody in Austin, yeah, they're annoyed by the traffic and the noise and all that other stuff, but everybody loves the economic benefit that it brings to the city. It's like $350 million every year. I think, you know, Mayor Adler has compared it to like having the Super Bowl every single year. It's awesome. And it's one of the things that, you know, makes Austin a really cool place. We get this, you know, infusion of ideas and people from all over the world who come in, hundreds of thousands of people descending on the city. And it's, you know, it's wonderful to witness and to kind of jump in with both feet and to become a part of the craziness and then we're all exhausted for a month or so after that. But, you know, in this case, it's not a good thing to do. I mean, from a public health perspective, literally you're talking about, you know, thousands potentially of infected people descending on the city, infecting other people at the conference, but then also this infection moving out into the wider community. That's not something we want or need right now. You refer to your own Twitter poll at some point well, later today or tomorrow morning when we post this, P. 
people are going to respond, a certain segment of the people are going to respond with, that guy's an alarmist, that guy's not that kind of scientist, that guy says it's worse than the flu, and here's my infographic that shows it's not worse than the flu. How damaging or how potentially dangerous and how much of an X factor compared to previous events like this is social media? Um, Social media has been really interesting to witness and to be a part of during this whole pandemic. And I will call it a pandemic. I think that the WHO is remiss in not determining that it's officially a pandemic. We're seeing community spread, very widespread community spread in countries all over the world on every continent now. You know, we just had the second case reported in Nigeria, Sub-Saharan Africa, really worries me for lots of reasons that I won't go into now. But, you know, nations, regions with with poor healthcare infrastructure are going to be hit particularly hard by this, as far as we can tell. Social media is is both good and bad. You know, when we were witnessing the Arab Spring a few years ago and everybody was saying, oh, Twitter's awesome because it allows people to congregate and demonstrate and get rid of these oppressive authoritarian regimes, everybody loves social media. But then, like, we realized with Facebook that we were the product and that advertisers were using our data and so on, and everybody became very negative about social media. Social media is like any other incredibly powerful technology. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad. But I think the way Twitter in particular has been disseminating information, I mean, I'm doing my best to, you know, I I throw my comments in and my opinions in from time to time, but I'm really largely trying to get the stories from other media outlets to people in the United States, because I just feel like people in the States are not quite getting how serious this is yet. So, you know, I'm reading the the Straits Times, the newspaper in Singapore, the Jakarta Post in Indonesia, I'm reading the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong and all these other sources and trying to get those stories out because I feel like Americans are not being given proper information. Part of this is our government. You know, I, I feel like the US government, the people in power right now have kind of dropped the ball. And, um, you know, you have to resort to sources like social media to get the the real story. There's going to be a lot of noise there, but there are also a lot of gems that come through. The opposite of social media is population genetics, is the long look at this to go back. And what do we, what can we take from that, from these previous pandemics and the way that on a DNA level, we've adapted to them that might apply to this? Yeah, I mean, again, we we see clear evidence of adaptive evolution to different pathogens as humans have moved around the world. You know, we all came out of Africa 60, 70,000 years ago. We've expanded around the planet, you know, living in vastly different ecosystems from the ones we evolved in over millions of years. So we leave Africa with an African immunological profile, and we have to adapt to the other viruses and bacteria and so on that are out there. And then, you know, 10,000 years ago, we developed agriculture. And so many of the diseases that afflict us today came into the human population from the animals we domesticated. So instead of hunting animals and encountering them occasionally and, you know, butchering them and living in small groups, so we're not really creating an epidemic. If a few people get sick, the group may die off, but you're not talking about everybody around the world getting sick and infected with the disease. When we settled down, became agriculturalists during the Neolithic around 10,000 years ago, 
And, you know, we started to have these viruses from our domesticated species, cattle and sheep and goats and so on, come into the population. You know, there were massive epidemics. I mean, a lot of the plagues that were described in the Bible, um, you know, probably originated during this period, this early phase of, you know, becoming settled, civilized, in quotes, people with domesticated animals. You know, measles, we know, for instance, is actually a cattle disease. It's ranger pest that kind of crossed the barrier into the human species. This happens all the time. It happens with the flu virus all the time. Avian flu, like avian means bird, like humans are in close contact with chickens and with ducks and so on in places. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com like China. And those viruses move back and forth. So this is something that has been with humanity ever since we really made that decision to become settled agricultural communities. It's both good and bad. Like you settle down, you can develop civilization, we develop art and technology and everything else that we love about the modern world, but it also brings a lot of unanticipated baggage and disease is one of those things that it kind of pulls along with it. On a DNA level, is there a way to see across history, pandemic by pandemic, is there a way to see how quickly we adapt and whether this one we're likely to adapt to or for it to, quote, go away in a certain period of time? Yeah, well, there are two types of adaptations. There are adaptations at the individual level. And, you know, that occurs when, you know, you get a vaccination. That's an adaptation at your individual cellular biochemical level. Um, you're exposed to the epitopes, so the proteins that are on the surface of the virus or whatever it might be. You get a measles vaccine and your body develops a defense against it, builds antibodies and so on that fight it off. And then when you're exposed to the real virus, potentially, like you're better able to fight it off. So that's an adaptation that occurs at an individual level. What you're talking about, I think, though, is a little bit scarier because what you're asking is, will we as a population adapt over time to this new virus? Yes, of course we will. I mean, evolution is amazing. Evolution will figure out a way around this. But what that means is that a lot of people who are not able to fight off the virus could die. And so that's the worry here is, you know, this is where, again, like we're not limited by our biology because we're so smart as a species. If we can implement certain public health you know, regulations, rules, laws, wash your hands, don't touch your face in public, don't go to large crowded events, which is again, why canceling South by, while it, it's horrible for so many people economically in Austin, it was the right decision. You're often credited as kickstarting the consumer mass DNA testing movement. Is there? <laughs> yeah, whether that's a good or bad thing these days, I don't know. But. <laughs> Is there a point down the line, maybe not this pandemic, but one down the line, where knowing my personal DNA makeup might help me? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm someone, I'm a scientist, so I believe more information is better. 
More information, if you don't understand what it means, though, can also scare you. And I think that's part of what people are encountering now with personal genetic testing is, okay, it's fun when a few thousand people test their DNA to determine that they came out of Africa and went into the Middle East and moved into Europe 30,000 years ago or whatever the story might be. Um, but when you have 40 million who've tested now and suddenly the FBI is interested in accessing those databases to catch criminals, and other companies are you know, using this for other reasons, developing drugs that you may have to pay millions of dollars for at some point. Like Everybody's beginning to ask, okay, so who really owns this data? How is it being used? Um, but ultimately, the, the raw genetic information and the interpretation of that information, I think, is incredibly empowering. And I hope we get past this, this kind of rough inflection point. Um, in genetic testing, where people start to see some real utility in their personal lives. That's always been the vision is, you know, you learn something that's useful, that makes your life better, that makes you healthier, that makes you safer, that makes you feel better about yourself, whatever it might be. There are lots of reasons people test their DNA. But, you know, one of those outcomes could potentially be, you know, there are people who come down with this virus and they're asymptomatic. And they're, you know, totally unaffected by the infection. And then there are people who come down with it and they die of pneumonia within a couple of weeks. You know, there are genetic variants that help to determine those outcomes. And, you know, knowing that information about yourself might help you take certain risks. I mean, you can't predict everything from DNA, but more information is better in this case. In some ways, these personal DNA tests are probably a lot of people's only real touch point for not just genetics, but science right now. <laughs> well, it, that's, that's kind of sad, in my opinion. I mean, listen, science pervades everything, like it or not. I mean, every time you pick up your cell phone, that was developed because of advanced you know, scientific technology, etc. Um, you know, climate change is real. What we ha are witnessing in places like Australia with the massive wildfires that are unprecedented, yet again, every year they seem to be unprecedented. Um, and with the locust plague that's hitting East Africa and, and Southwest Asia, um, you know, all, it, climate change is clearly happening. Science has a huge impact on humanity. And I think, you know, it's almost like the earth is trying to tell us something. You know, all these disasters are happening in the span of about, you know, a few months or a year. And you just have to ask, like, okay, so where does this end? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope that we're smart enough to see the signs and to, you know, start to, to take heed of what, what the world is trying to tell us. You know, science has been saying this for years. I mean, we've known that climate change is happening for at least three decades. And yet, you know, nobody took it seriously until we're, we saw those pictures on television of, you know, koala bears burning to death in Australia. You know, no one takes the possibility of a pandemic seriously until, like, their grandmother dies of the disease. And, and it's so sad. It's like humans can only respond to something when it becomes very personal and very dangerous. You know, I, I hope that... If we take a lesson away from this, it's that, you know, we need to be building in a little more resilience into the system. You know, the, the system in the West for at least the last 30 years has been, you know, this kind of Fukuyama-esque, you know, end of history, the Soviet Union's dead, Cold War is over, we've won, liberal democracy is the end all and be all, and we can start to shave all the margins off of our business and, you know, become highly profitable, but not build anything in for capricious 
um, events. And this is one of those capricious black swan events. Um, you know, it's something we should have anticipated, we should have been planning for, but we haven't. And, you know, you're going to see a lot of businesses fail. You're going to see a lot of airlines fail. You're already seeing it. Um, and you're going to see other companies start to go under as well. So, you know, I, I think we, we've entered this interesting phase where we assume that we've kind of conquered nature, but nature will come back occasionally, as it has now, and remind us that we are part of a larger biological sphere or network that involves every organism on the planet. The downside, though, to everything you seem hopeful about, that at some point we could become better about getting ahead of this stuff and being more precautionary, is that as our financial outlook decreases, those things become harder and harder to execute. No? Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a vicious cycle. I mean, this is, it's again part of the problem with assuming that, you know, there are no unanticipated, you know, events that could happen. There are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. We assume that the unknown unknowns won't happen, but they, they do occasionally. And that that's what we're witnessing, you know, to quote Rumsfeld. So you may be for a little while a man without a country. You're, <laughs> so you're looking at going back to Singapore. I'm a proud resident of Austin. I love Austin very much. And it, you know, I think Mayor Adler made the right decision. I think the, the you know, Department of Health in Austin made the right decision. I feel terrible again for the people who are affected by this economically, but it's better than dying. Like if you die, like there, there ain't no way to crawl out of that hole. There's always a way to crawl out of economic holes. Well, I meant physically you're a man without a country because you're going to be in <laughs> yeah. Singapore wondering when it's okay to come back to America. What are you well, going to be and, looking and, but, for in that process? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the shocking thing. Like, you know, I, I grew up in America at a time, as you did, I mean, we're Gen X. You know, we assumed, as everybody else did, like, you know, we're the the kind of... Um, you know, the ultimate realization of the way the world should be and that we have the best country in the world and so on. And, you know, we did for a long time. But, um, you know, I think what this is revealing is some of the limitations in what's happened politically and economically in the U.S. over the last couple of decades. You know, what I'll be looking for is really, you know, when when do we see things being contained? When do we see, so China, obviously, you know, everything exploded, that's the epicenter of all of this. Really scary, no one knew what was going. The Chinese clamped down, they took away personal freedoms and they basically stopped it in its tracks. We're seeing something similar in Korea, the Singaporeans got on top of it very early, so not that many people have been infected yet. Um, you know, Belgium has more people infected than Singapore does now. But, you know, what I'll be watching for is for that, that curve to flatten, as they say. I think that's a term that everybody's acquainted with now. It's really odd because a week ago, no one would have known what that meant. But it's really like, when do you start to see the flattening of that exponential growth? That's what I'll be looking for. When I have a sense that, you know, the U.S. has it under control because you don't want to fly into an epidemic, a wildfire, you know, it's, it's really scary. Um, you know, and I feel terrible because, you know, my brother and my mother live in Austin and I keep telling them like, this is more serious than what you're hearing on the news. Um, you know, I just hope that, that it's all going to turn out all right. And that people are going to get a handle on this. In theory, if we clamp down the way you'd like to see us clamp down, 
we don't let you fly back for some period of time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what's going to happen sooner than that is that other countries are going to start blocking American citizens from flying in. So Singapore could potentially block Americans from coming into the country the way they've done with Italians and Iranians and South Koreans and Chinese. And I think that would be totally justified because quite honestly, the fiasco with the CDC and the test kits and the fact that so few people have been tested, we don't know how widespread this is in the States right now. It's a huge black box. And the scariest thing you can have in one of these emerging epidemics is lack of information about the true number of infections. And I think that's part of the reason why people have this kind of arrogant complacency. I think there are a lot of people in the States who still believe that it can't happen here. I mean, this is an Asian problem. It's never gonna happen in a place like Austin, Texas. Well, it could easily happen and probably is happening right now. And I don't wanna sound alarmist. I, I just, I hope people will, you know, respond in a way that will save their lives because this is what we're talking about. You know, you as an individual, probably won't die from this. You probably have a 99% chance, maybe a 98% chance. If you're older, maybe a 93% chance of living, even if you catch the virus. But you could pass it on to other people. And that's, that's the scary thing about public health is that you have to think beyond yourself as an individual, which is something we don't really do in America very often anymore. You have to think beyond yourself and think about what's good for the whole of society. This is the reason you get immunized. It's not just to save yourself, it's also to create the so-called herd immunity, where you, know, you get a certain number of people immunized and everybody's protected in the population. That's what we need to be thinking about right now. That vaccine could be a year and a half away. We could be having the same conversation next year. Yep, I would not count on the vaccine to save people. Um, hand washing is far more effective at this point. In the short term, in terms of treatment, the, the Chinese are looking at some quinine-derived compounds, so compounds that historically have been used to treat malaria. They seem to be seeing some effects there. I haven't seen any peer-reviewed studies, but these are things that are kind of coming out um, of the rumor mill and on social media. Probably the best thing you can do right now is if we can get enough people um, that we've tracked who have been infected and recovered and we can take plasma from them, we could collect the immune serum globulins, so the basically the antibodies. You know, when I was younger, before we had a hepatitis A vaccine, when some kid in school would come down with hepatitis A, we would all go in for a gamma globulin shot. Um, those were selected in large part from people who had been infected with hepatitis A and survived. And the idea was you could kind of prime your immune system to fight off the virus. You know, it's not something everybody should necessarily get in this case, but certainly people who are, you know, deathly ill who are in the hospital in the ICU on respirators, you know, that, that could possibly save their lives. So, you know, in the short term, that's where I would be focusing, but you got to test more people. You, you can't do that with 500 people tested or a thousand people tested. You need to be doing testing at the level that South Korea is doing it. So tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people across the U.S. On a personal note, how crazy is it for you that this kid from Lubbock, who wound up at Harvard, works the way you do with DNA, is now essentially stranded in Asia <laughs> in the middle of what might, may or may not be a pandemic. You know, I was thinking about that today, actually. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, life is crazy. 
Um, and you know, you can always create a narrative that makes sense of the choices you've made and where you've ended up. Um, you know, I've, I've tended to take advantage of opportunities and do things that interest me and I've been very lucky and in all sorts of other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that I'm talking to you about this from, you know, central Java at, um, 940 at night nearly. And, you know, as you say, I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, and, you know, this is not something I ever worried about or thought about really, um, when I was a young kid growing up there. So it is, it is a little crazy. All right. Well, we appreciate you uh, MacGyvering up your technology there. And, <laughs> and, well, I hope it works out. I hope you guys can, can hear me. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Stay safe out there. Thanks, Andy. You too. You can follow Spencer Wells and his travels at SP Wells on Twitter. Meanwhile, our latest issue of Texas Monthly, featuring the best new restaurants in Texas, is available on newsstands now. And you can, of course, read highlights from the issue and find daily coverage of all things Texas at TexasMonthly.com. We'd love it if you consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment, or rating us wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next week. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.